you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, Isaiah. Uh, we'll be in chapters 24 through 27. Um, and uh, as Christians, uh, we, we live uh, kind of in between times, so to speak. We, we know God's promises, right? We're this side of the cross, so we know that Jesus paid the price for sin on the cross, that, that he defeated the grave, uh, but we're not home yet. Right? We're waiting. Uh, this world is, it is not as it should be. Right? No matter what you believe, I think, I think everyone can agree on that. The world is broken. It's messed up. The world is full of suffering and sin, and we are certainly contributors uh, to uh, that sin. This, this is not the new heavens and the new earth. And, uh, and I hope that more and more uh, God is increasing our longing to be with him uh, forever. Uh, as, as we've been in the book of Isaiah, uh, we, we've read these promises that, that God made. And, and his people knew uh, his promises. They longed for the, the promises in these passages like we'll read in, in chapter 25 today. We'll read uh, about this feast for the king and, and with his people, uh, a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, when God's people finally get to rejoice over their Savior who has swallowed up death. God's faithful followers heard Isaiah, and they longed for that day. And they related to other things that, that we hear in Isaiah 2. In chapter 26, we're going to get this picture of a woman in labor. She's in pain. She's in anguish. Hours and hours of this work. And then it says she gives birth to wind, right? to, to nothing. What a frustrating picture. You certainly don't need to uh, have, ex have the experience of going through labor to understand the problem with that. Right? All of that work for nothing. And this is what it can feel like at times in this world as we follow God. Right? Trying to wait for the Lord. Wondering, God, what are you doing in, in this chaos that I see all around me? Struggling to trust, maybe battling doubts, longing for what will be, right? Not, not chasing the, the things that this world promises, but chasing after God. And that's what we see in our chapters today, right? There's victory in Christ. The Lord will judge. He will deliver his people, but we are not to the end yet. Our truth statement is this. Turn to the Lord. Trust in him. God will judge all unrepentant sinners and will deliver all who trust in him from his judgment through judgment. This call is to turn to God, to trust in him. We've read about judgment. We're going to read about some more judgment today. God will judge sin. Anyone who does not repent and turn from sin will be judged. And God will deliver all of those who trust in him from his judgment through judgment, which that might sound confusing for a minute, but we'll get there. So, so far in Isaiah, we've read about the judgment uh, uh, against Israel. We've read about the judgment of the nations. And then chapter 24 uh, focuses on the whole earth. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. 
And, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with the master, as with the maid, so with the mistress, right? In other words, everyone's in the same boat. It doesn't matter what position you have in the world. Sin will be judged. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. This judgment is for the whole earth. It might flash us back to the book of Genesis. We think of Noah Right when God saw human wickedness on the earth, that it was so great that, that every imagination was only evil continually. Verse 4, the earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Why is this judgment? Well, because humanity has broken the everlasting covenant. Humanity has rebelled against God, and our sin is so great that it's polluted the whole earth. And chapter 24 goes on to describe, I'm not going to read all of it to you, but goes on to describe this judgment and what it will be like, right? that singing has ended. Even drunken songs have ended. There isn't enough alcohol to numb the pain. The streets are desolate. There's rubble. But then later in chapter 24, God's people break out into a song of praise. And they're right. Everything that they, that they say, that they sing is correct. But Isaiah says their timing is totally wrong. The judgment is not over, and the people of God are suffering. In verse 16, Isaiah cries out. He says, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me. Until God brings an end to history, God's people still live in a broken world. We still have to deal with the consequences of our own sin. Right? And we feel that sometimes more excruciating than other times. We, we still deal with the shrapnel of, of, of sin around us, even things that we haven't necessarily partaken in. We, we deal with, with the collateral damage. We feel the constant frustration of knowing God's ways, but living in a world that rejects God. And if we're honest, we recognize that, that we're far from perfect in living in God's ways. So there's this reality that we're between kind of two times. We know what God is doing and will do, but his work is not yet complete. And today's chapters remind us of how to live in this, in this time, trusting in the Lord, waiting for him, fighting the discouragement of this life, clinging to our king, clinging to his promises, longing for when he will make all things right. Chapter 25, verse 1. It says, O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Right? You are my God. This is a deeply personal statement that would be really easy for us to just gloss right over. He's saying, I want you. I need you to be my God. I want a God that is like you, that is faithful like you. I've seen the limits of these so-called gods of the nations. You are the only God with power, with wisdom, full of compassion. You alone are good and just and righteous. You haven't abandoned me even though I turn my back on you time after time. You're faithful. You're steadfast. You have not forgotten about me. 
He says, I exalt you and praise you for you've done wonderful things, wondrous things, miracles. And today, we strip God of his power in our minds. We tend to not really believe or, or think about the supernatural. But by his power, God is able to save his people, and he will do that. By his power, God will judge sin. By his power, he will deliver his people from judgment through judgment. We, we see glimpses in this passage, but we see this most clearly in Jesus, right? that sin had to be judged. Jesus stepped in. He took our place, took on the judgment of our sin, saving us from the judgment that we deserved. And this is just as he's planned right, to do before time began. And several times now, Isaiah has reminded us that God isn't shooting from the hip. Right? He isn't just kind of reacting to history as it unfolds. No, he's not, he's not caught off guard. He isn't trying to figure out what his next move is. God is the only being worthy of completely trusting. His plans are faithful and sure. He will do exactly what he has planned to do to save people who respond to him from all over the planet. Verse 2, he says, For you have made the city a heap. The fortified, the fortified city, a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. And the, the, this city here isn't named, and that's intentional. Right? It's not a specific city. As readers, I don't know if we immediately understand what, what good news it is that this city will be ruined. This city represents rebellion against God. It represents the nations uh, that, that set out to oppress and crush God's people. And the city in the next chapter will be contrasted with God's city, right? the city that God will establish, the city that is beautiful where everything will be right. But the best part of that city is that God will be there, that God will finally and forever dwell with his people. But here we, we read about this city that will be destroyed, in their rebellion towards God. And right now in America, um, we're not experiencing the persecution that so many of our brothers and sisters face uh, all over the globe. Uh, I mean, they're, they're losing jobs. They, they can be imprisoned. They, they can be killed. Um, e even though our country isn't like that, there is a, a growing um, opposition to those who follow Jesus, to the way of Jesus. And, and some of the hatred towards Christians is uh, about stupid things that people have, have, have said or done supposedly in the name of Jesus, but not all of it is that. But there's more and more in-your-face opposition to following Christ. And, and I've talked with you. I know you're feeling it in the workplace or, or at school or, or in the stories you read or in, in the media so this city that we read about here is the great oppressor. Yeah, we, we do want God to, to bring that city to ruin. So you, we can understand the cheers back in chapter 24 when God's people see judgment against the oppressor. I was thinking about parents and, and grandparents. Um, I think it's really easy right now to be fearful of the things that uh, our kids are facing and hearing. And while... While we might verbalize, yeah, I, I trust God in this, I wonder how much fear has gripped us, maybe more than we realize. 
Certainly a parent's job is to protect their kids, to disciple their kids, to, to equip them with what they need to follow Christ. And in that, are we trusting God? Are we trusting the power that he has over the enemy? We, we can imagine a time when oppression is defeated, when you aren't afraid for your kid, when you don't fear opening your mouth and, and being labeled uh, a phobic uh, or told that you don't believe in science or, or that you, you don't care about the rights of this group, when, when we're not mocked for believing in God's promises because his promises have been fulfilled, because those who oppose God will be judged in perfect goodness, justice, and righteousness. And when that comes, we will burst into song like this. We will say, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. God will defeat the city. And I don't know if you caught it at the end of verse three there that through this judgment, there'll be some that come to God, some that recognize God in his greatness and they will confess that he is Lord. Verse four. For you've been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. We know what that is like right now, or we wish we knew what that was like. Uh, For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. And it goes on. So not only is is God strong, mighty, the all-powerful one, he's our fortress. He's our shelter. Scripture often describes him as a refuge for his people. Verse 5 describes this cloud shading from the heat. Right? Of course, a shelter, a fortress, it has to have strength, but, but this isn't only a description of strength. These are descriptions that, that reveal that God is, is personal, he's loving. There's an intimacy here with his people. It's not like the false gods that Israel was chasing that the nations worshipped. There was nothing personal about those idols, right? It was only uh, about this supposed power, but the God of Israel, Yahweh, was all-powerful. He was intimately personal with his people. He loved them. Truly, he was their father, right? In his power, he was their father. And there's something about when you're a kid and, and something goes wrong. Maybe you get hurt or you get scared or, or there's something threatening and, and you run to your dad right, for protection, for shelter. And as we grow older, we, we tend to, to run to our parents less and less. I wonder, is the Lord your stronghold and your shelter? Or, or have, you outgrown, have you outgrown running to God? Verse 6, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. I just want you to imagine, as, as, as a Jewish person trusting in God, hearing this in the book of Isaiah, maybe you're living as an exile in a foreign land, and, and everywhere you look, you, you cannot find good. You're, you're in a foreign land, oppressed. Your, your home land is in rubble. You try and look and convince other, Christ, other followers that, that God is at work, but you can't. Right? What you have are, are God's promises that you've been clinging to. They were taught to you, and you've been clinging to them their whole life. Promises that many other Jews have just given up on hoping in. But you're still trusting that God will save as he's promised. And then you hear in verse 6 here about this mountain 
And this picture of the mountain has been used many times by Isaiah, where God's glory will be clearly revealed. Imagine longing for that time when all of your hopes and your trust are proved correct. You're vindicated. But this mountain isn't only about proving that you were right to trust in God. Isaiah says that the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, right? There's deliverance of some from every nation who will trust in God. A result of God's right judgment is that some will come to see the Lord from all over the globe. Like we read back in chapter two about this mountain, that, that, that people will flood to this mountain to learn the ways of God. Everything God is doing is to save people for himself, to himself, right? Nothing is wasted. Every act is all a part of his work to save. History can look like just a hot mess. Your, your life, your, your, your little part of the world can be in, in total shambles, and yet we read and, and we can trust that God is at work in, in everything that we see. As frustrated as you might be in life, do you trust that God is at work, right? Even in the things that you might view as horrible or, or, or evil, even, even results of, of sin that you brought on yourself, God is at work. You might remember the name Corey Tinboon. Um, she, uh, she survived in the concentration camps. Uh, she loved Jesus, followed him, and, and afterwards she was invited to go all over the place and speak about God's faithfulness and, and how, how uh, God... God sustained her in these concentration camps, and she would often bring um, uh, a piece of her embroidery that, that she would do. And I think we have a, a picture of her embroidery, um, perhaps. There we go. Uh, uh, it it kind of looks like she needs a new hobby. Gosh, that <laughs> sort of fitting, I guess. Um, it, it's a hot mess, right? It, it, it does not look right, and life uh, life can look like this. Life can feel like this. Just tangles and knots and, and chaos. It really just looks like mistakes, right? Like, like a project gone very wrong. But this is the backside of it. And let's show the front side. Ah, come on. There we go. Um, the other side reveals the purpose of all of those knots and threads, it was all purposely planned out. Each point was, was aimed with necessary accuracy. God knows what he's doing. God isn't winging it. So how do you respond to the mess of knots and, and what might look like mistakes in the world around you? Have you given up? Have you put your faith on cruise control? I wonder what is your prayer life like? Are you praying for God to bring glory to himself in this broken world or, or, or your prayers just kind of lifeless? God has been, is currently, and will continue to work in order to gather people to himself. He will glorify himself. There's a description in Revelation that I love, just myriads upon myriads of people uh, praising God, worshiping at the throne. God is at work. Verse 6 goes on. 
It says that these people on the mountain, they're, they're, they're going to be at a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Right? There'll be this feast, like the feast of the coronation of a king. But this isn't just any king. This is the king, the king of kings. Right? There'll be well-aged wine being served. Right? No, no two-buck chuck being served at this party. There'll be rich food, fatty meat, and maybe fatty meat grosses you out, but that's where the flavor comes from. Like, it'll be rich food. And this feast is unlike anything the world has ever seen, recognizing the king. And isn't it just like the king of kings to give to his people abundantly to celebrate with him? And, and of course, none of us have ever been to a, a feast like this. But, but maybe you've been to a wedding reception or, or some type of celebration that was just full of joy. Right? And, you, and you, you go up to the table where the food is, and, and you're just like, are you kidding me? This spread is amazing. And there's good friends there, and you, you laugh, you talk together, there's music going and dancing. But, but even the best party that, that's ever happened pales in comparison to the feast that, that God will host. Verse 7 says, and he will swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. The last enemy, death, will be defeated. It will be swallowed up for good. No more will death loom over us. Death has been defeated Christ, death is the final enemy. Tears will be no more. God will take away the sorrow we feel because of death. And then verse 9 bursts out into song. It'll be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Right? This is our God. This resonates with what God said, what he said really since Exodus you will be my people and I will be your God. And in one sense, right, if you know Christ, you know this truth now, but there will, there will come a time when you fully know and experience what it is to be his people and for him to be our God. After the waiting and the fighting through doubts and discouragement, the, the struggling to trust in his promises will all come to an end. Our waiting will result in jubilation. We will rejoice in the God who has saved us completely and forever. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. Can you imagine? Chapter 26, verse 1, opens up with this other city, right? This city is described positively. The, 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 the city we read about before was arrogant. It was prideful in rebellion against God, but not this one. This is not the proud city that opposes God. This is the city established by God himself. Verse 1, it says, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. The way into the city is by righteousness, and our righteousness is not righteous enough to get us in the city. One commentator wrote, to expect to impress God with my righteousness is simply to indulge in another species of pride. Isaiah knew that. The Old Testament writers, the New Testament writers all knew that, that all the good that we can muster will never be enough. 
right? We cannot earn eternity with God. If you think that God will receive you because you're pretty good, you do not understand the gospel. Instead, we, we trade what is ours, our sin, and we, we trade it for what is Christ. To all who will put their faith in Christ, he gives us righteousness, which he can do because he took our sin. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. And the song describes those who follow God and he urges them, urges God's people to continue to trust in him. Verse three, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And is that you? Is your mind stayed? Is it fixed on God because you trust in him? This song exhorts us, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in other things. All of those other things will come to ruins. Trust in God. What's trying to erode your trust in God right now? What tempts you to stop following God? What's trying to convince you to stop obeying Christ and what you know God has commanded? Is it that life is so hard? Right? Do you just feel worn out and battered? Do you look around and you see something that you think, maybe that will be better to trust in that? That will give me something immediately. I can't wait. If you feel worn down and exhausted, man, I'm telling you, God is exactly who you need to trust in, for he is an everlasting rock. He is stable. He is a shelter. He is your refuge. He is salvation. Every other way will end like the lofty city in ruins. Verse 8, in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. We, we wait for you not just to be delivered, but we wait for the one who is our deliverer. Right? The songwriter knows that, yes, salvation is great, but salvation means that God is his and that he is God's. God is the desire of our soul. We were made to be in fellowship with our creator. This is the end game, to know and be known by God. Uh, I loved this out of uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. We read this several weeks ago on a Sunday night uh, together. He says, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palm of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There's, uh, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is, uh, this is moment. Uh, momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There's tremendous relief in knowing that his love, and if you're not paying attention, dial in right now. There's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. 
That's crazy. Right? That the, the, the we can know God and be known by him, even though he knows everything about us. Verse 9, he says, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. And, and skipping to verse 16, O oh Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Man, God's, even in his judgment, he's bringing people to him. Right? He wants people to know him. He wants, he wants to know them. He says, my soul yearns for you in the night. Is that you? Right? Or are you like me that just so often my love for God grows cold and distant? It's like I'm too familiar. God, would you stir our souls to yearn for you? Would you grow us more and more so that in our spirit we would just earnestly seek you above all others? Verses 17 and 18 this is that picture of the woman in labor. It says, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O oh Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we've given birth to wind. We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth. The inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Watching your wife uh, give birth is a humbling experience recognizing that you cannot do what she is doing. Um, even, if, even if the plumbing was right, like you realize you just married one tough son of a gun <laughs> to go through all of that. But what makes all the pain worth it for, for this mom is that a baby will be born, her, her child will be born in the end. But in 17 and 18, that's not the picture. They, they go, this woman goes through all the labor and nothing is born. It's like wind is born. Right? And they said, what, what would have been worth it is, is deliverance. How many Israelites lived trusting and waiting for God to deliver but didn't see it in their day? But there's life beyond the grave for the one whose hope is set on God. There's resurrection life. Verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise you who dwelt in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light. The earth will give birth to the dead. Resurrection isn't just some New Testament thing, right? This is all throughout Scripture. John, uh, John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, that, that is what God has for his people. Chapter 27, verse 2, it says, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish, punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. And he goes on and on. And, and this should flash us back to chapter 5 when we read about the vineyard. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's used as this parable. But here, it's different. Right? Here, God keeps the vineyard. It doesn't wither in drought like the picture of chapter 5. No, God waters it. Thorns and thistles don't overtake it like they did in 5. No, he fights them off. Instead of cries of oppression and bloodshed, there's peace because of God's presence. Instead of Jacob being this wasteland, it says that Jacob takes root. And its fruits will, will fill the whole world. Right? What a picture of Christ. 
caring for us, keeping us, defending us, providing for us. He has not abandoned you. He's giving you what you need to take root and grow in him. He, he is bringing people from all over the world to himself. I wonder, have you turned to him? Do you trust in him? Will you obey him? End of chapter 27, verses 12 and 13, it says, In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. You will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria, those who were driven out of the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Make no mistake, God is at work Sin will be rightly judged in perfect justice. Everyone who does not repent will be faced with God's judgment. But those who do turn to God, those who trust in God, will be saved from judgment through judgment by Christ being judged in our place. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that that in it, that, that we can hear and, and read that, that the chaos of this world has not thrown you, that, that your plans are the same plans that you, you had before any of this began, Lord. God, we thank you for your grace. We, we thank you that, that you are gathering a people to yourself, that, that you are saving people from all over the world, people that respond to you in faith, people that, that, that give up trying to make a way on their own and, and realize that you are the only way. And, and Lord, I, I just pray for anyone in here right now or watching online that, that's they're not really following you. They're just trying to make their own way. They're, they're trying to figure out this life on their own. And God, I just wonder, like, how, 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 many, how many roadblocks, how many dead ends are they going to need to run into? God, I pray that they would turn to you today, Jesus. They would quit running from you and run to you, God. And Lord, for those brothers and sisters in Christ that have been following you for however long, Lord, would we wait on you? Would we trust in you? God, would we cling to you? Would our spirits yearn for you? Would you really be the desire of our soul? Jesus, we love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.